All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to thank our sponsors uh, for today's show, making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Caden Resources, Canamax Resources, and we have a new sponsor this week, Go Gold Resources. Go Gold trades in Canada under the symbol GGD. Uh, it's trading at about $1.53 today, 138.7 million shares outstanding. Uh, leaves it with a market cap of about uh, $212 million. I recommended purchase of this stock in my newsletter last week, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I do expect to be talking to the company's president, uh, Terry Coughlin, uh, in the not-too-distant future, and I might mention that uh, I believe uh, a copy of what I've written about this company will be posted on our website at miningstocks.com in the near future. Uh, also, we're going to be talking uh, to Ivan Bebek in just a few minutes from uh, Caden Resources. Uh, Ivan um, is the president and CEO of that company. A uh, very exciting story and uh, one I also have recommended in my newsletter, as is also the case with Canamex Resources and uh, own those stocks as well in my own personal portfolio. I'd like to encourage you to keep your questions coming uh, to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. We do have a very busy schedule today. Uh, so, and we're hoping to have Ivan Bebek join us momentarily. So let me uh, just give you an overview of what today's show is about. I've titled it, The Brick Countries, The Dollar and Gold. David McIlvenny and, as I mentioned, Ivan Bebek uh, will return. They'll be with me here during, uh, during the first hour. And in the following hour, aired exclusively at J. Taylor Media, that's jaytaylormedia.com, Greg Johnson of Wellgreen Platinum. Uh, will be with me. Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with me. Jeff Berwick and David Jensen uh, also. All four of those gentlemen will be with me in the second hour of today's show. Uh, David, uh, that is uh, David McIlvaney, our, our main guest on the first hour today, will talk about how events in the Ukraine may uh, impact equity and precious metals markets. Uh, David will have an awful lot more talk, uh, topics to, uh, to give us his views on as well. Uh, Ivan Bebek will update us on Caden Resources, which has gained, well, over 20% since we spoke spoke to him last February, February 25th to be exact. In the second hour, um, Greg will be with us from uh, Wellgreen Platinum to give us uh, the latest developments on that company's significant platinum deposit in North America. I think it is one of the most outstanding uh, platinum deposits, uh, undeveloped 
platinum deposits in the world for a host of reasons. Uh, a favorite of mine, I own the stock and have also recommended it in my newsletter. Uh, absent mainstream media spin, of course, we're going to have uh, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He's going to be joining me. Uh, we'll get Daniel's latest update on the Ukraine and how that uh, may be impacting us uh, in the financial markets as well. And Jeff Berwick uh, will stop by as well to educate us about the long arm of the Foreign Account uh, Tax Compliance Act, that's F-A-T-C-A for short, and how the IRS confiscation system is out to pick your pockets any way it can and what you might do about that. And David Jensen will uh, round out this week's discussion uh, with a review of the factors impacting both the real gold markets and the fantasy markets uh, that are being used in, in David's view and, and mine, a view that I share as well, to suppress the price of the paper markets in London and New York. Well, given our shortage of time, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, Ivan Bebek will be with me to talk about another very exciting company, Caden Resources, uh, and the progress that company is making in Mexico on two very promising properties. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Ivan Bebek. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. He's the founder, president, and CEO, and a director of Caden Resources, where he oversees all the corporate and financial activities of that company. And uh, Ivan has been in this industry and the financing side uh, for more than uh, 14 years, uh, involved with financing acquisitions and mineral uh, in the mineral exploration industry, so he's well 
well-groomed to uh, to handle this company. He's doing a great job from what I can see as a shareholder and as one who's recommended his shares uh, to my subscribers as well. Caden Resources uh, trades in Canada under the symbol CNDX. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, under the symbol CYD, uh, and it trades in the United States uh, where you can purchase it, as I have, under the symbol CDKNF. Uh, today in Canadian dollars, it's selling at about $1.90. In the U.S., uh, when I looked at uh, the uh, the price on my screen for my shares, it was $1.74 in U.S. money, somewhere around that range. But it's done very nicely since we first talked to Ivan back on the 25th of February. Uh, the shares are up, uh, well, quite significantly, 20% or so, I believe, since then, in spite of the fact uh, that the company has announced the financing of uh, many times takes the share price down, uh, but not in this company. The company has... Uh, two highly prospective gold targets in, in Mexico, the El Borquino, uh, which is located in the Sierra Madre gold belt. And the second project is known as a Morales Sur uh, gold project, uh, and that's up in the up-and-coming Guero gold belt in Mexico. Welcome back, Ivan. It's really good to have you again. Thank you very much. It's definitely a pleasure to be here. Really good to talk to you, and it's really a lot more fun talking to CEOs of companies whose share prices are on the rise. I say that uh, with a great deal of uh, the opposite having been the case over the last couple of years. But uh, and, and we do see a bit of a, of a bounce back in the equity markets for the gold shares for sure. Uh, but yours have performed, I think, better than most, especially for stocks that are selling over a buck and um, in percentage terms. And the fact is, you know, Ivan, you just really – uh, raised, I think, nearly $9 million by issuing 5.3 million shares or something like that. And your share price has performed well. It's actually gone up since then. And, and many times, more often than not, even in good markets, I see the, the shares of junior exploration companies taking a hit when they announce the financing. How do you account for uh, the, the good reception that you've had, shares prices rising even after you've raised and added another 5.3 million shares, which I might add is, uh, you know, against 41.6 million before that. So it's a, you know, just to put that in perspective. So how do you account for the, for the good reception that you're getting? Sure. Well, I'd like to, um, to give full credit to the project, the Albarcano project for us uh, first. It's, uh, it's something that's really getting a lot of the right attention. Um, we've had a tremendous amount of early success, and we're starting to understand a much bigger picture of what could be there. And our, our theory, is, since we've spoken last, keeps getting proven towards the possibility of multiple open-pit gold deposits occurring on the project. That could be uh, very profitable. But the second part, and uh, this is something we did really well in our previous company as well, and I'm learning that it goes well with finding gold deposits or a gold mine. You generally get to uh, have the luxury of financings that are, are largely oversubscribed, as, as this recent one was. It was about uh, two and a half times oversubscribed of what we were oh. looking to raise. Wow. And what what shocked me was the day we announced the financing, it was done via bought deal at $1.70. Um, the gold price was down about $17 that day, you know, for mm. most of the day. And mm-hmm. the financiers came and, and they, they asked us to raise the, uh, the financing from seven, originally $7 million up to $9 million with the uh, extra allotment there. And, um, you know, we were very pleased to see that. And I think that, um, well, first compliment to the shareholders who came into it. There wasn't very many. There was about four or five different investors, but they were the key investors that you would want uh, as shareholders at this stage of a project to drive it forward, uh, whether it be uh, additional investing or, or becoming future financiers of the company and uh, and by virtue of that I think the, the the shareholders who participated had not seen something like this 
in the last three or four years because not too many companies are exploring and drilling and successfully hitting as the way we've been. So you had a combination of, uh, of a very appealing project. Um, you had a, an amount of money that, that uh, obviously I think we've seen, like you said, a slight bump in the space. Well, I think smarter money is going to want to go after the projects that are, are, are going after higher grade open pit gold right from surface like ours. Um, we are very anti-dilutive. We do protect dilution at all costs, so we are, we are very reluctant to do a very large funding at this stage, and we believe we have a, a series of milestones that will protect the value and increase the value for our shareholders in the next 12 months. So, you know, we kind of communicated that message during the financing, and, and we got the reaction that you saw, and subsequently, as you said, we, we keep moving up with our share price, and I think there's a greater greater anticipation of what's to come out of our, our project, and, uh, and that's, that's your main driver for the most part. And, uh, you know, in a, in a lukewarm market for commodities or for gold equities, I think we're, we're starting to shine a bit. And, um, you know, we, we sit here looking very forward to drill results from Peña de Oro, which we just started drilling a few weeks ago. And we're drilling it with two drills now versus one drill in our first target. Um, a large reason for that is the confidence based on the surface trenching and exposure that we saw of gold mineralization before we started our drill program. We've hit some of our highest grade gold here. And we would have drilled this target first, although the Azteca target has proven to be a, a phenomenal target for us. Um, however, we did not have permits at the time to drill this first. So in, in theory, you know, it's, it's early days for the company and there's nine different targets to drill. Um, we'd argue that we might be on to the best target or one of the better targets uh, by virtue of grade and what kind of tonnage and mineralization could occur. However, it's, it could be that I could be saying that in two or three targets from now as well. There's, there's a lot of unknown that could be a very promising for, for this project. Mm-hmm. You know, as I look at a map of uh, those nine targets that you speak of, uh, I guess those are targets that were derived from, uh, from trenching and from surface work of, of one kind or another. Uh, I, I'm wondering, is, are, there, are your geologists suggesting that this could be one major system that could be joined together at depth somewhere? I mean, now you're talking really at, at early, early days, you're looking to prove up a, a commercial amount of, of gold uh, open pitable targets, I guess. But is there some sense that this thing could be a lot larger at depth? Um, absolutely, uh, to answer that, and I'd say a depth and a long strike. And, and you touched on a very good nerve that the geologists have right now, and, and somewhere that we carry a lot of exciting anxiety towards the project is the areas that we're focusing on first are areas that have had either eroded hillsides or the hilltops been eroded, and mm-hmm. they've exposed a lot of the gold veining right from surface, and the rock around the gold veins is also running significantly, so it's creating a, a potential commercial economic type of a scenario. Um, this is extremely appealing and you, you look at the project as a whole and you say, well, if, if these are the outcropping areas because there's either been some historical work done on them, you know, from artisanal miners or the Mexican government back in the 80s, or there's been a hill that's been eroded that's exposed these veins, what happens 500 meters away or a kilometer mm-hmm. away on strike? And mm-hmm. if you look at the target we're drilling right now, Peña de Oro is a perfect example of that because we have about a 100-meter-wide area of trenching that's, that's averaging a few grams per ton in the two to three gram per ton range. And then if you go down along strike back towards the way that the area that we were just drilling Azteca, you get a couple of our highest grade Peña de Oro trenches in areas that had no previous workings and we hit eight of or nine of 14.7 meters and, and nine of eight meter or eight grams per ton. Uh, we've hit mm. some really good 
outcrops. And, and these are hand-dug kind of, you know, walking along the way and seeing a bit of outcrop and following mm-hmm. up on it. So mm-hmm. it gives us a, a lot of reason to believe, and we'll see it here shortly with the drilling, that um, the strike length of, of from Azteca to Peña de Oro, which are two of our targets, is about eight kilometers in total. Oh. And we think the veins go consistently across that or are fairly consistently. They'll vary in widths and, and outcropping exposure, but we think there's a good chance that you could have, as, as if you were to imagine pearls on a spring, multiple deposits along that eight kilometer of strike length. And keep in mind that's, that's involving actually three targets out of our nine targets. Uh, Zapote is, is the third one that's involved there. It's an extension of Azteca. But when you come to site, and, and one day we'd hope to have you down there on a visit, you know, it's, it's not a very complex geological concept. Uh, the direction of the veins lines up perfectly between these targets. And you're looking at several hundreds of veins on a, on a 465 square kilometer properly, which is huge. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a very significant land package. And you get all these veins and you get excited and you have some areas with more exposure than others and you're drilling them and you're finding gold beneath the veins. This is, this is kind of a, a very <laughs> fortuitous situation to be in. It's hard not to kind of arm wave to yourself of how big yeah. of a, a district could be there. But, you know, it is early days and, uh, and the most important thing for us is to kind of get to the the three to five million ounce range uh, to kind of, you know, get to that commercial kind of mm-hmm. economic look sooner than yep. later so that we can, we can fund this going forward or reveal enough to bring enough value to our shareholders before we go down the, 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 the I guess, the, uh, the opportunities that can come to a company finding a very big gold deposit in the future. Right. You know, Ivan, I, I look at this and we've only got a couple of minutes left, so we've got to hurry along here, but I noticed that you don't have a 43101, and yet this thing is the share price is holding together. Another, another thing I think what it tells me that you have probably a lot of very, uh, very uh, accomplished mine mining professionals that are invested in this company so far because they're seeing the kind of things you're talking about. They don't necessarily need to see a 43101 resource. Nonetheless, when do you expect to have one uh, forthcoming? Um, yeah, and being conscious of time, uh, I think uh, Q1 of next year will be probably when we do our first resource by the end of the first quarter of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, if we get to that point, and then what I want to clarify there is that, um, you know, as you pointed out, the professionals who understand the mining aspect extremely well, you, you don't want to rush and do a 4 through 101 early, and, uh, and, and it's, it's too early to do that because right. you generally do that once you've had a chance to drill enough areas or enough of your target that you can start to scope a resource and be able to estimate uh, what it could be going forward. We're at the stage right now where it's still got such a big look that it would be very premature to do one. And uh, however, we cannot wait forever not do one. So we're going to do it, drill it aggressively with two drills up until uh, Q1 of next year. And we'll okay. look at putting together a preliminary resource on it, which will still be early in the project. And it probably will only involve three or four targets out of the nine targets, but it'll be enough, we think, to, to give the proper respect to the project and what could be there. Okay, Ivan, uh, how much money do you have in the till, and could you just comment briefly with about uh, one minute left uh, on your other property, the one uh, next to Gold Corp there in, in Mexico? Sure. We have uh, $14 million in cash as a result of this recent funding we did. 
Uh, we have another $4 million in dilutables that are due in August. Their warrants at $1.50, which are below the market, but they're with very friendly shareholders. So we're sitting with a consolidated treasury, including receivables of about $18 million. And independent to your second question is uh, the second project, the Morella Sur project. We own a piece of land that sits in between the two pits that make up the 16 million ounce Los Filos mine. Um, those of you who've been following the press releases with Gold Corp recently, that mine has been halted because of uh, negotiations with the Hitos. They've uh, they've got to come to terms again, and uh, we don't really. That does not really impact us. However, we do own a piece of valuable land that is tied to the value of that mine going forward. And um, you know, we've seen this before in that project with Gold Corp, and they've generally resolved it within a few weeks. And uh, what we what we believe from our standpoint is that it brings a lot more attention to a very profitable, a very good mine okay. for Gold Corp in Mexico. And okay, you know, we I have an un- capitalizing later. You, you got to go. I have an unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm so sorry, but we'll have you back soon, and we'll Great. talk. We'll give we'll give our listeners more of this information. Information that we didn't have time for today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, well, folks. Dave. Don't don't go away. But I'm going to be right back uh, after the break with David McAvenny, who will have some real good and interesting things to say about the gold market. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again David McIlvaney. For those of you who may not be familiar with David, he is the president of the McIlvaney Financial Companies, McIlvaney Wealth Management, and ICA. That's a 36-year-old precious metals brokerage firm. He has been a featured speaker on radio around the country, analyzing world events and their impact on the global economy and financial markets. Uh, David can be heard weekly on his market commentary at McIlvaney.com. 
And uh, he is a graduate of Biola University and an associate member of Keble College, Oxford University, where he studied philosophy and political theory. He then went on to achieve honors as a top salesman with the Southwestern Company and gained extensive business expertise with Morgan Stanley in California. His international research has given him a global perspective of developments around the world which help him avoid focusing too narrowly in his analysis of investment and risk in any given category. His interests are varied, but he is a, a father, uh, has a wife, and uh, lives in Colorado, the lucky guy. I, I say that as one who lives here in New York City. Uh, but welcome, David. It's really good to have you back with me again. Jay, pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you. Um, I think you do extremely good work. I love, I love uh, your website, uh, which uh, I just mentioned. Um, on the homepage of your website... Um, you say that your relentless examination of global economic, monetary, and political conditions reveals clear market trends that provide the basis for long-term investment strategies. So I'd like to ask you about some of those elements that, you just, that, that are mentioned there. Uh, the global economy, could you talk a little bit about the global economy? I mean, it seems to me, in the world that I live at least, that things are not all that going all that well. In China, there's certainly huge amounts of indebtedness that we're hearing about, empty cities, malinvestment thanks to a state-run economy. But we have a lot of the same in North America, where we're increasingly moving away from markets towards, I would say, statism um, and, and control of fewer and fewer people that are, and more control of, by government. Same in Europe. But what's your read of the global economy now, David? Um, you know, could we be onward and upward to some really happy times and good times again, or do we have some real concerns out there? I think where our concerns center, and this requires a little bit of context, is, is we are at the end of a long-term credit cycle. And if you look at sort of the growth that we had in the 80s and 90s, a part of it was through technological innovation and, and normal organic growth. And then as we moved towards the latter part of the 90s, we found consumers were more inclined to just put it on the credit cards. And mm -hmm. certainly in the last 10 years, 2000, say, to 2015, the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a major ratchet higher in, in terms of, of, of uh, growth in debt. Um, to, to where, you know, basically, if you're comparing debt to GDP, uh, we've been moving higher by about 16% per year. Mm. Um, that kind of growth in debt in the system is, is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, Jay, I think a part of the issue that we have is, is a bad and broken business model, um, not enough innovation, far too much uh, state intervention and control, uh, signing was a normal creative process in, in the business community uh, with greater and greater concerns about, uh, you know, whether, whether it is tax issues uh, or, and, and that being a concern, I think, for, for everyone and always, uh, but also sort of what, what will be legislated that will impact or impair the business community. You see a lot of behaviors today in the business community reminiscent of uh, the 1940s up until about 1949, where the business community sat on cash mm -hmm. did not invest heavily, in part because they didn't know if it was, a, they had the all-clear signal uh, for state intervention. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it seems to me, David, that what we have today is liability money as opposed to asset money. At one time when we had a gold-backed standard, um, you know, we, we had paper money, but it was backed with gold. And um, now what we have, though, is money that's clearly 
money that's created out of nothing. Well, it's not exactly out of nothing. It's created out of debt. So, you know, one of the charts that really alarms me that I've seen in terms of the United States economy is the tremendous, almost exponential growth in debt. You mentioned that, that consumers were using their credit cards to uh, continue their lifestyle. And what we've seen is this enormous, I see this chart, this enormous amount of total debt in the United States, private sector, public sector, uh, and and then GDP on the same chart. And GDP is growing, if at all, in a very slow, linear fashion. You know, sub-3% GDP by the government's numbers in the U.S. compared to this this debt that's just growing off the chart. So as you say, it, it, it doesn't, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to sort of figure out that, that, it, that that's not sustainable. But we don't we have similar problems in Japan and in China and elsewhere? We do. This is this is a global problem, and I think they may have taken our lead to some degree, looking at the, the success, quote-unquote, story of, of the last several decades. And, you know, today, just in the United States, if you know, many economists believe that if we don't grow our level of debt by around $2.2 trillion a year, that we'll slip into recession. And again, that's an indication of growth being driven by something that is very unhealthy. The $2.2 trillion in debt, that factors in inflation and will allow us to continue to grow. Um, that I think is a bad, a bad model for growth to begin with. We had the same thing in, in Japan, as you mentioned, uh, that the idea that somehow we can jumpstart an economy uh, by money printing, uh, by credit extension, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to innovation and hard work, uh, getting on the right side of the demographic trend. I mean, these are sort of the fundamental things that drive growth, um, and, and we don't have them. We don't have them in the United States. We don't have them in Japan. And, and frankly, the demographic picture in, in China is, is not all that great either. Growth rates, obviously, everyone is envious of, of, of anywhere from a 6 to 8% annual growth rate in China. Um, but it's been a declining trend. It was double digit. It's been rapidly slipping. And there are so many vested interests in China, Jay, that are very resistant, very resistant to any change. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they like the system as it was. State-owned enterprises and, and, and sort of a collection of high rents. Um, if you're at the top of the food chain, you've been accumulating uh, not only millions, but billions of dollars. And to change that model and favor households will come at the expense of those vested interests. So right now, you've got China, which is potentially an engine of growth, but you've got political hurdles that, frankly, I don't think they're going to get over. You've got Japan. Uh, they, they really are a boat anchor, and I don't think they're, they're going to be anything but a detriment to the global economy. The U.S., I don't know that we're going to be contributing much, in part because, again, you go back to the debt that is needed to generate growth. Households are not willing to do it. So government has stepped in, and in order to quote-unquote problem aggregate demand, as the Keynesians like to call mm -hmm. it, uh, they've stepped in. And, and, and by the way, they don't even have the audience that they need to, to create that debt and have someone happily buy it. So now the Fed, in an incestuous relationship with the Treasury, is monetizing that those, those Treasury bills, bonds, and notes. So mm -hmm. it's a very un, unhealthy picture, and you could say, well, then there's Europe. Europe certainly is, 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 is a shining light. They went into the crisis earlier. They're coming out of the crisis sooner. Uh, and yet what we have is, is complete dysfunctionality. Um, the, the folks who started the Euro project, uh, this, this, Jacques Delors and the others you know, 30, 40 years ago who envisioned the Euro, they envisioned political union, they envisioned fiscal union, and they knew that they would be unable to move towards that. Uh, and so they did what was easy at the time, 
which was a currency union. The mm-hmm. problem is, without those other factors, without there being political or fiscal union, a currency union ultimately will be a disaster. So that's what they're struggling with now, is the fact that they put the cart in front of the horse. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that, that debt is the problem, though, David, because uh, as you know, with debt growing so much more rapidly than income, not to mention what uh, this increase of debt money does in terms of malinvestment and, and misguided uh, use of capital and so forth. But, uh, yes, I agree with you. I think we're in, in really bad shape globally. But what I hear you saying here, uh, though, I think is that there could be deflation. And, in fact, I'd, I'd like to just mention an article that appeared on your website, I think, a couple of weeks ago, uh, titled Cries of Deflation Really Implies More QE. Uh, do you think uh, that deflation is a real concern? Is it a legitimate concern of the Fed and, and other central bankers, given the fact that this debt is growing so much more rapidly than than income? Well, it's a very legitimate concern. I mean, we've we've put so much on the tab, so to say, and ultimately we'll have to be paid back, or we just default. Uh, and there's multiple ways to default. We can default outright, as you've seen in Latin America, but it's not really likely in our case because we we do have a world reserve currency status, and we do have uh, a, a very efficient uh, printing press. And so the reality is we can have the more subtle form of default via inflation. I think that's the strategy that the folks at the Fed are pursuing today, mm-hmm. which is extend and pretend, uh, make sure that everyone is happy and, and is moving towards belief that the economy is on the mend. Therefore, the U.S. consumer will get back out and start spending rather than tightening their belt and relieve some of the pressure that's on uh, the Treasury today to issue new debt and keep the game going. Um, but that deflationary event, which, which they're fighting to avoid, um, yeah, it's because there is real pressure in the debt markets. We've mm-hmm. gone beyond what is a sustainable amount of debt, uh, but they're not willing to change their business model either. So th- there's some interesting similarities. The intransigence that we see in China, we also see an intransigence here in the United States, and it's because they've accepted a paradigm and are unwilling to look at anything different than the operative paradigm of the last 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what that leads to for us, Jay, is, is that, yes, they will print. They will continue to create money out of nothing. And though there is a deflationary bias in the market because of the debt structure and our demographic picture, guess, guess what they have? Resolve and hubris. Resolve to, to do whatever it takes and, and pride that precludes them from doing anything that is inconsistent with their models and the PhDs which they wrote maybe 20 or 30 years mm-hmm. ago. They're defending their, they're defending their pride. They're defending uh, their, their right to be a PhD with, with credibility. Mm-hmm. And they're assuming, I mean, again, we're talking about over 600 people at the Fed with PhDs. Mm-hmm. We're assuming that they can't be wrong. They understand the nature of depression. They understand the nature of deflation. And they'll ex- excuse anything they put in place uh, in terms of extraordinary monetary activity mm-hmm. uh, in order to keep this deflation from occurring. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me, David. It seems so clear that the policies that have been instituted, not just since 2008, but going way back, have done nothing but really increase the volatility, uh, the, uh, the the lack of stability in the global economy and the U.S. economy. Bubbles become now commonplace, and the the uh, solution to um, to the last uh, bubble collapse was to create a bigger bubble and another bubble. 
and pride and hubris. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I think you're absolutely right, as James uh, Grant has said that we have substituted the uh, the PhD standard for the gold standard. And so, but it, but the fact that we continue, I mean, I think it was Einstein that said this is the the definition of insanity to continue doing the same thing and expect different different results. And and yet, um, I I wonder though, what is going to trigger this, David? From you know, as you mentioned, like it's much like the 1940s now, uh, after the Great Depression, or the 1930s, 1940s, when the Fed pumped huge amounts of money into the system, uh, but it wasn't going anywhere. It's sitting there, and the consumer is tapped out. Where where is the demand going to come from? I mean, I, I, they're they're doing everything they can: deficit spending using the Keynesian model, uh, monetary stimulation, and yet. Everybody's broke. Well, the corporations aren't. Arguably, I guess. I guess the companies' uh, profits are, have been very strong, which is the rationale that Wall Street gives for the uh, for the booming stock market that we've had up up until at least up until now. But what is going to cause this to change? What will what will allow this uh, the, the inflation to really take hold? Uh, as they expect it will, and and can they, if it does take hold, can they keep it in a moderate gro- a moderate level of inflation, or is it likely to get away from them? Well, I just wanted to comment though on before we move past the earnings being strong for corporate mm-hmm. America. I think one thing you should consider is that, is that you know revenues and sales have not been uh, completely blockbuster, uh-huh. but what we have seen is a radical improvement in earnings per share figures. Right, and the improvement in earnings per share figures, you know, sixty percent of that last year came from share buybacks. You've got corporations who are basically saying, hey, listen, we're at the top of the food chain. The executive committee gets together and says the only way we're going to get our bonuses this year is if we show a sizable improvement in earnings per share. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, guys, let's spend a couple billion dollars buying back shares and and we'll beat the number by a penny. And and we'll see an improvement in earnings per share. That's what was heralded by by the news media. Um, far more than any other statistics. Well, how did you? How did you do? Did you beat expectations on EPS? And so I think there's a bigger story here, and it's it's that the the quality of earnings has has in fact been in deterioration for several years now, mm-hmm. and what we've seen is creator and cre- more creative uh, and engineered uh, financial results. Mm. So I, I think you know yes, they're making money, um, but they're making money and having to be very creative in the way they report it in order to get bang for the buck in the marketplace with the stock market marching as high as it has. Right. And, and, and by the way, this is we're now at the extreme end of speculative excess, in our mm-hmm. opinion, in, in the U.S. equity markets. We mm-hmm. just hit the sixth successive month of record, all-time record highs in terms of margin debt. Wow. Last two times, Jay, last two times we, we set the record. Uh, for margin debt, that is people being so confident that stocks only go one direction and mm-hmm. that direction is up, was 2007 and 2000. We put in new margin highs in those two years and they were followed by, by catastrophic catastrophic events. I, I would suggest that sometime within the next six to nine months, if not sooner, we have something that's very, very painful in the U.S. equities market, in part because you've just layered in $500 billion worth of liquidations. And why, why do we say that with great confidence? Mm-hmm. Because the clock is ticking. Someone has borrowed that money to mm-hmm. go invest in stocks and, and they're either right 
on the move, or they've got to pay the money back at some point, either mm-hmm. at a, mar- a marginal gain or a marginal loss. But those are those are liquidations which have to occur and are likely to occur in the next six to twelve months. Yeah, and as that happens, it it can cause a chain reaction, a domino effect, essentially that uh, uh, one declining price begets another, and another, and another, and the margin clerk calls, and you have to sell not what you want necessarily, but what you're able to sell. Which leads me then to the question of gold. Uh, if we have a tremendous decline in the equity market, do you think that's that could impact uh, some downward price uh, momentum in gold? You know, we certainly saw that in 2008. Um, even with the selling pressure, October, November, we, we did recover through December of 2008. So in the midst of all assets being sold, I think you could say gold will see some pressure. Uh, but there still was differentiation, even by the end of the year, as people said, wait a minute, I still want to keep the best credit. Maybe I shouldn't have sold all of my gold. Or mm-hmm. if I'm going to lose some other asset because it's a bad credit, this is the best credit. This is the best form of cash. We tend to look at gold as cash. We look at it as, as, as a monetary alternative and, and something that you know competes in terms of integrity uh, with the U.S. dollar and wins. Mm-hmm. And competes in terms of integrity with the euro and wins. Um, and we do think that history is something of a guide. 5,000 years has, has taught us that there are qualities related to gold that make it clunky uh, and inefficient and one of the best forms of money. A part of its clunkiness and inefficiency comes from the fact that it is tangible in nature and can't be created out of nothing. The fact that there's greater efficiency in the fiat money system speaks to one of its primary weaknesses. Yes, it works well. Yes, it's genius. But you know what? It's also the means by which we as savers are taken advantage of in the extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you have, uh, I would argue, a not real capital you have uh, or capital distortions that are created by new money that's pumped into the system that then uh, really causes a lot of trouble but you know I'd like to refer our listeners to uh, a DVD that you've just completed titled What is Real Money Uh, and I I thought one of the most uh, and I saw the uh, promotion for this and one of the most fascinating aspects in a description of this DVD uh, that I read um, that came to my desk here was as follows. You said, after 42 years of trading gold and silver, we've put together a, pr- a primer exploring the metal's most fundamental identity as currency. We explore these types of investor and, and consumer demand along with the geographic shifts witnessed in recent years. Gold is returning to the portfolios of investors, asset managers, central bankers, and sovereign wealth funds for very uh, particular reasons. And here's what really, uh, really uh, made me sit up and pay attention. It said, in April, the World Gold Council and the University of California, Berkeley, will conduct an executive training in gold reserve management for central bankers from around the globe. There are many changes occurring to our global monetary system with implications for investors in central banks, end of quote. Now, I found what I found really interesting, David, was the fact that the World Gold Council is going to be talking to central bankers about, um, about gold as a, reserve, as, a, as a reserve. I mean, this is just, um, to me, is almost unthinkable that central bankers would, would even contemplate the notion of gold um, being a reserve again. Well, something very unique has happened in the last 15 years, and, and that is that emerging market economies through trade with the United States and Europe have developed currency reserves that hitherto they've never had. So, you know, the, the, the idea of managing these resources 
uh, is on their mind perhaps for the first time ever. And, you know, they've grown up in an age where reserve asset management was a question of which fiat currency you move to. Mm-hmm. Is it the euro? Is it the dollar? Is it the Japanese yen? Is it the British pound? Um, is it the Swedish kroner? The, you know, there, there are go-to currencies in a, in a basket of currencies which should be represented. And the question is now being asked, you know, after watching the dollar decline by 33% over the last 10 to 15 years, mm-hmm. the question is being asked, do we really have to subject ourselves to that kind of volatility? Uh, you know, the, the, these are resources which they're responsible for directly to the people, and the idea of having gold in the mix is more and more popular amongst your emerging market players. So I'm, I'm very interested, too. This is the second year in a row that it's been conducted there at the UC Berkeley campus, and your junior central bankers will fly in from all over the world to figure out how to manage gold as a reserve asset, how it how even functions. For, for many of them, they're still considering the fact that the only gold they've ever seen is perhaps on their, on their wedding finger. I mean, that they really don't have a concept of the history of gold, the, the role that it played through the golden era, if you will, 1860 to 1914, mm-hmm. the change of the gold standard uh, from the gold standard to the gold exchange standard in 1922. I mean, all of these are things that central bankers should be educated on, and frankly, most of them are not. So mm-hmm. this is a great opportunity for them to learn how to buy it, and we see that. We see that in the numbers. The numbers are absolutely compelling. Jay, you know this as well as I do. Mm-hmm. The central banks from 2009 to present have been net purchasers after 20 years, every year, consistently of selling down their gold reserves. Now you're talking about a different stock of central bankers, mm-hmm. the emerging market central bankers who are desperate for knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really interesting, David. I would like to ask you about a, a concept uh, concerning the gold markets as they exist now. Uh, we've had uh, one guest on this show, David Jensen, uh, who talks about, he says there's two, basically two separate gold markets. The first is the paper market, the one that trades in London and New York, where about 99% of all the transactions are just paper transactions. They get canceled out. Uh, and about 1% is actual bullion uh, settlement, settlement and, and delivery of, of bullion. Uh, and, he, and he mentions that this is a, a market that is traded by a handful of major bullion banks, essentially five or six different banks, that he believes are in there on both sides of the market, basically distorting or disguising uh, true price recognition uh, that, that would be there if it was a pure gold market, uh, bullion market. On the other hand, he thinks the second market is evolving in China and in some of those developing countries, I suppose, that you were referring to. And his idea there is that uh, is that ultimately the bullion market will win. He believes that the, uh, that the New York and London markets are, to a great extent, uh, price suppressed, uh, and uh, that uh, when the shelves are empty one day, we're going to see gold prices that are considerably higher. Now, I mentioned this uh, just reading uh, Alistair McLeod. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's come out with some new, a new study. In the amount of gold that is uh, being absorbed into China, and uh, by some accounts at least, uh, China may have purchased as much gold as was produced uh, or may have imported as much gold as was pr- produced by all the mines last year. Uh, insatiable demand for gold, it seems, from that part of the world. 
And then we have politi- geopolitical events that are taking place, and uh, the Chinese liberalizing their gold petroleum trading markets, their gold markets. Uh, I think they're opening up one in Shanghai that will allow foreigners to buy and sell and take delivery of, of uh, or deliver gold into Shanghai. Uh, and and Russia, of course, is you know with the difficulties that we're having with Russia uh, in um, in the Ukraine, and Russia is openly saying, "Look, we've got friends. We don't have to have the dollar. We don't have to trade in dollar uh, in dollars." And they're making deals with Iran and with uh, India to trade gold or to trade uh, oil uh, for for commodities or for other you know other items to bar- essentially or for their own currencies. Now, do you um, do you think that we could be at a, at a pivotal point in history here? You know, after all, it was 1971 when Nixon changed things drastically uh, by doing uh, completely doing away with the Bretton Woods Agreement. Do you think we could be on the precipice of some major regime change, monetary regime change here, David? Yeah, and, and I would I would go back a few years from '71 and say that that we were changing the rules in '68. It mm-hmm. became sort of a flashpoint in '71. We we went to the world and said basically, if you're a friend of America, and this is the language we used, if you're a friend of America, you will settle your transactions in U.S. greenbacks instead of gold. Yeah. And and the French the French under the direction of Jacques Roof, who had been the, the financial attaché in London, when the Brits devalued the nineteen thirties, he said, I've seen it, I've been here before, I know exactly what that means. I know they're going to devalue. We should go ahead and start taking delivery of gold. And and they did. The French took massive delivery and actually precipitated what was the closing of the gold window mm-hmm. in seventy one. But the backstory was we were throwing our weight around. We were essentially involved in what you might call financial statecraft, using the financial markets to to aid with our foreign policy objectives in the 1970s. And we really are doing the same thing today. Mm -hmm. We're doing the same thing today, and I think observers around the world, just like the French in an earlier period, are saying to themselves, should we be at the end of an American foreign policy whip? And should we somehow insulate ourselves from American financial statecraft? And, and the way that you do that is in the physical markets. It's not in the derivative market. So mm-hmm. when you're talking about options and futures and ETFs and things that derive their price structure from the base metal uh, or, the, or, the, or the basic metal itself, there is that market, and there is the raw physical market, the tangible asset, bars and coins, which, yes, difficult to move, but ultimately are the form of money which were relied on by the French in 68 uh, to 71. And on a growing basis, uh, you see central banks around the world and state actors around the world saying to themselves, if we want to insulate ourselves, create a distance from the financial system, which has been monopolized in the West by the U.S., and by the U.S. Treasury, then we have to do something with our self-interest in mind. And I think that's where you're talking about uh, an insatiable appetite for gold. Jay, that does not count in the individuals hither and yon across the globe that are saying to themselves, we might have an interest in owning a little bit. Mm-hmm. On a per capita basis, on a per capita basis, you could not own. I mean, it's just if you divided up all the ounces of gold ever mined, 174,000 tons of gold, divide that by the current population, and you're dealing with about 0.69 of an ounce per person in the world. Wow. Less than one ounce of gold in, in, in the world. And, and what's interesting is if you wanted to be amongst the 1%, amongst the 1% of gold owners in the world, you would own, let's say, 30 ounces. 
Wow. 30 ounces would put you in the one, top 1% of gold owners <laughs> in the world. And, and yet you've got central banks who are now competing with individuals for who, who will survive the changes that are in front of us in terms of the world financial system uh, and the world monetary system. They're buying by the tons. And I, I, th- I think the folks at Gold Money, Jim Pierce Group, are, are doing great research there, pointing out that, yeah, I mean, by the time we get the next announcement from the Chinese, Keep in mind, it was about a seven-year gap from mm-hmm. when they you know, moved from 500 tons to basically over 1,000 tons, almost 1,100 tons of gold. On the next announcement, it's not going to be any surprise for them to have surpassed the, the Germans and be sort of in the 3,500 to 4,000-ton range in terms mm-hmm. of official gold holdings. Because it's not like they have not been accumulating since 2009. Quite to the contrary, they've been aggressively accumulating. So I think by the time, Jay, the average individual figures out that there's something wrong with the world monetary system and they want to protect themselves uh, and want to, to denominate a part of their hard-earned savings in something that is not subject to the PhD standard, they want something tangible and they want gold, I think it's going to be very hard for them to get at. And as you mentioned, Dave Jensen's comments, they're going to find that the physical market is stretched very thin. Mm-hmm. Out of the 174,000 tons that have been produced throughout world history, there's a lot of happy holders and not very many people who want to let go at current prices. And, you know, maybe at a considerable higher price, you'll see more products come to the market. But I think those are the dynamics we're facing here in 2014, 2015, and 2016. Yeah, so it's really important that people buy the gold while they can get it because if there's a breakdown in the system, I, I could see some weekend when problems start to occur in the global economy, uh, the G7 or the G. 20 even get together and they they announce on Monday morning there's a new realignment of the world's monetary system and then uh, you may not be able to buy gold or silver at anything like the current prices so I think David's uh, David, I think your um, your recommendation is very good. People need to uh, to 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 act now, not to wait. Uh, and as I look at the clouds uh, gathering over the horizon globally and geopolitically, what's going on in the Ukraine and elsewhere, it seems to me that uh, we could be not all that far away from some major change. That's just my my view. And so, what I'd like to tell my listeners, though, or you should tell them, David, is where they can go. Your your firm sells gold. It sells bullion. Sells silver. Over too, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, where can people go to avail themselves to that product, and and you, generally the information you have, and as well as the DVD that you have just put out. I've watched it, and it is absolutely excellent in terms of laying the foundation and an understanding of what money really is, and and why we're going to go back. The market's going to demand uh, back. I think a return to honest money. But tell our listeners how they can avail themselves to all these products that your firm provides. Yeah, Jay, our, our direct contact is, is 800-525-9556. Um, that would be a great way to, to reach out to us by phone, 800-525-9556. And if someone's wanting to get to know us and, and kind of what we've been doing for the last 42 years, you can find us at McElvany.com. It's M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. Uh, the DVD that you mentioned, it's, it's free if you, want a, if you want a physical copy. We'll, we'll pay the postage and get it to you. We think it's that important. Wow. What is good. real money? Mm-hmm. Or you can watch it online. If you want to go to YouTube, you can watch it online as well. Lots of folks like the physical you know, uh, copy, and we're, we're happy to send that to you. I think the important thing to mention there, Jay, is this. Gold as money serves a critical purpose. It will serve you well in a value exchange in the future. 
as money, you treat it like savings. And at some point, there is a compelling value proposition in front of you that you should say yes to. It's not as if you buy gold and hold it forever. There may be some portion of your savings which you denominate in ounces and keep for an extended period of time or pass on to the next generation. But to me, having gold ounces today, they're begging for a new home. They're begging for an investment in, in, in productive farmland. They're begging for an investment in, in, in productive companies, mm-hmm. the land, plant, infrastructure of, of a company, whether it's in um, Spain or South America or the United States or Switzerland or wherever it may be. You use your resources and, and, and you, you go back to sort of the old farmer's adage of, of preferring to buy straw hats in winter. And, and when you have gold, as, as again, a secure monetary deposit, be willing to spend it when the time comes. Because you know what? There's other things that matter more to you. I'm not sure, you know, there's things that matter more to me. Does someone want to own a ranch? Does someone want to buy a house and raise a family? Does someone want to start a business? All of these things are things that you should put your money into. The question is, when is there this value exchange which is incredibly compelling? And I would say right now, the world is priced to perfection because of what the Fed has done to manipulate rates lower and change the, the perception of, of what risk is in the marketplace. So you have risk that is under-accounted for and values which simply are not compelling today. And I think it argues for a strong position in quote-unquote cash. Cash mm-hmm. being, for me, gold and silver ounces. But at some point, won't you want to spend it? And that's yeah. really what we're getting at with what is real money, uh, the primer of the supply and demand dynamics of gold, the role that it plays, when and how you should let go of it, uh, and what that future value proposition looks like. So hopefully that's helpful for your listeners. Yeah, I'm sure it will be, David. Thank you very much. When and how to buy it and when and how uh, to let go of it uh, are, are key questions, and they're questions I think that uh, our listeners would be well served to go to McIlvaney.com. I believe it is McIlvaney. Com, uh, to catch up on the weekly missives that are there and a lot of other free information there as well. I want to thank you very much, David, for being with us today. Jay, good to be back with you again. Well, that's just about all the time we have for today's first hour, but there is more to come at jtaylormedia.com. As soon as we sign off here, you can go to listen to several discussions that I have. First with David Jensen, he's going to be talking about how the Russians are pushing back against the petrodollar in favor of petrol gold. And the always colorful Jeff Berwick will be with me to talk about his views on Bitcoin, gold, and liberty in general. Greg Johnson will be here as well to talk about what is one of the most promising major platinum group metals companies in the world, that is Wellgreen Platinum. Their project in the Yukon, I think, is one of the most promising projects in the most stable jurisdiction. One of the most stable jurisdictions, anyway, in the world. Seems as though platinum is produced in South Africa and Russia. Not the greatest of places these days to rely on stable supplies. Next week, our headline guest will be Jim Rickards, who returns as a guest for the second time. Rickards was on previously to talk about his book, Currency Wars, and now he has a new book that he is going to be talking to us about next week called The Death of Money. I'm sure you won't want to miss Jim Rickards. I also expect to have with me a stock picker or two, and Daniel McAdams, I think, will stop by as well to give us an update on the latest geopolitical issues of great importance. I do want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening to this show. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. 